Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read the first seven verses together. As I mentioned, I've been sick this week. I had laryngitis, well, up until yesterday. My voice is still not 100%, so I may have to keep it under two hours today. So, well, the Lord will keep me going as long as he needs me to. But I promise you'll get home for lunch. All right, Revelation chapter 2. And this is the first of the letters to the seven churches. We discussed the seven churches as we referenced them in the first chapter. And here we see in these first seven verses of chapter 2, Christ is addressing the church at Ephesus. So we're going to read starting at verse 1 down through verse 7. The Bible says here, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent." But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Let's take a minute and pray, please. Father, now we open your word before us. And we want to submit ourselves to the authority and to the teaching of it because we know it is from you directly. It is the power that you have given us from your mouth. This is the sword of the Spirit that we have, the Word of God before us, which not only gives us strength to defend against the attacks of the enemies, but it is that which pierces into us. It discerns who we are and what we are. It shows us and reveals us the truth about our nature and the fact of how much we need you. And so, Lord, as we look into your word today, we do need you. We need you to guide us and teach us. We want to understand the things that you have for us today. So I pray that you would send your spirit and help us to be submissive to his work in our lives as we hear your word taught. Father, I pray that you would use me now and give me strength of voice and body and mind. I pray that you give me wisdom and the words that you want me to share. Lord, let us hear from you, not from me that you, your word might be proclaimed and that your truth might be spoken today. And that in all that's said and done, you might receive the praise and glory and honor. And we ask these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As I mentioned, we have been going through Revelation for about the past four weeks. We've gotten through chapter 1. We are in chapter 2. <clears throat> and we are at the beginning of the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. As we've talked about before, these seven churches are seven real physical churches that existed at the time of John. And God, Christ, literally, is giving John this um, revelation, this vision, that he is to give these messages to the seven churches. In chapter 1, we saw the revelation of Jesus Christ, the glorified Lord to John, uh, the Apostle John. And as John falls on his face in worship... Christ says to him, get up and write. And here is what he's about to write. He's writing these letters to these churches. These churches are real churches, are physical churches. At the end of chapter 1, Revelation gives us an outline of what Revelation is about. It's about the things that John has seen that came before, the things that are, and the things that will come to pass shortly. Here, in chapters 2 and 3, we have the things that are. This is the present conditions of the churches in John's time. So John right now is writing about the things that are present in his life and the things that actually he's connected to in a way that many of us don't really even understand. Uh, Hopefully you'll understand that a little bit more when we're done today. 
But as he writes to these churches, he has a message that is good for all of us to hear, for all churches that can help us avoid problems and and worship him correctly and function correctly as a church and as believers if we take heed to the message. Now remember, back in chapter 1, it tells us that there's a blessing or blessings in this book for those who will read and will hear and listen and Take heed to these things. And so here again, in fact, you'll see after at the end of all seven of these letters, Christ uses this phrase, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a phrase that's very similar to what Christ said when he gave his parables while he was on earth. He said, he that has an ear, let him hear. Pay attention and learn. And so he uses the same admonition here When he gives these admonitions to these churches, he's saying it's not just for these churches, although we're addressing specific problems in the church, these are problems that are going to be common in churches and in Christians' lives, and therefore it's good for all of us to listen and pay attention. And this is how he addresses the church in Ephesus. So, In every letter, there's several parts. Christ addresses himself. He presents himself using a description, or at least part of the description, that we've already seen in chapter 1, as John has seen the vision of Christ in his glory. And here in verse 1, Christ presents himself to the church at Ephesus. If you look after he says, These things saith he, this is talking about Christ, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. These are not new phrases. John has already introduced us to these phrases and these descriptions of Jesus Christ in his description in the revelation of Christ in chapter 1. So now Christ literally is quoting this description and using these phrases to present himself to this church. And he says, first of all, these are the things, saith he, that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Now we've already seen at the end of chapter 1, Um, Christ revealed that the seven stars are the seven messengers of the seven churches. They're representatives of the church, probably elders or pastors from these churches that have come to receive this message from John that came from God or from Christ to give to them. And he says he's holding these seven stars in his right hand. And we saw that that signifies that God protects his people but also controls his people. He is the one who is in power. That's a symbol of authority when you hold something in your right hand. So Christ is the authority of the church, and he's the authority of these messengers or of these elders. The word here, again, is is angelos in in the Greek. It means messenger. It can be used as a reference to angels, and it is several times in the New Testament. But here, as we saw last week, I believe that it's talking about physical human people that represent these churches because God is giving the message of John to, to John to give directly to people. It wouldn't make sense for God to give a message to John to give to angels to give back to people. So these are messengers, physical messengers from the churches, and Christ is pictured as having them in his right hand. And then he refers to himself as the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Again, in chapter 1, we saw these seven golden candlesticks represent the churches. The the number seven represents the number of completion. So although there's seven physical churches that are addressed, this is a, a picture of the complete church. In other words, this message is appropriate and good for all of us, not just in John's time, but in our time as well. And so he says, I am the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, or in the midst of the church. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, John describes Christ. When he first turns around and he sees Christ, the first thing he says is, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and then one in the midst of them. And the reference is, he sees Christ standing in the middle of these seven churches. Here, Christ takes it, in a sense, one step farther. And he says, I'm not just standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks or the seven churches. I'm walking. Now, standing or being present in the midst shows us that God is the center, or Christ is the center of everything, obviously. That is why we come together. That is who we come together for. But he also is near us. 
He will never leave or forsake us. And so him being in the midst of that shows those two things. Here he says he's walking. And that tells us that he's not just passive. He is actively working among and in his church. Okay? It's not just that, you know, he's there if we need him. No, Christ is here. He's doing his work. He's actively participating in the function of believers' lives, both as a congregation and as individuals. So Jesus presents himself here to the church at Ephesus. And he says, I'm the one in control. I'm the one who protect and guide you. And I'm actively working within your church. So he gives them this sense of Christ's presence right there. Now, before we get into what he told the church, I want to give you a backdrop of the church at Ephesus so we can understand this message a little bit more clearly. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor. Asia Minor was basically most of what we call modern-day Turkey, and that land was a land of paganism. It was dominated by idolatry, false teaching, and every kind of vice that you can imagine. That was the character of the society of Asia Minor. It was completely godless. Ephesus was the city that became the capital of that, not just in a political sense, but in all other senses. It was the capital of vice and evil and every evil thing, if you will. If you wanted to find something bad in human society, it would be in Ephesus. Okay, Ephesus was a major center of commerce and trade. Uh, There were several major roads and highways that came into Ephesus and distributed out to other major areas. So Ephesus was kind of the major center of commerce and trade. It was at the center of everything that happened in Asia Minor commercially, and it was on the route of major trade routes. So if you want to put a modern-day equivalent to Ephesus, think New York City, okay? Um, everything that New York City represents, that was Ephesus commercially. It was also a very big center of religion. Now, when I say religion, I use that word lightly, okay, because we're talking false religion, every false religion that you can think of. In Ephesus, there stood not just a temple, but the temple to Artemis or Diana, Diana was the most revered and most sacred goddess of the ancient civilized Greco-Roman world. She was the goddess of fertility. Now you think with a name like that, they would come up with this image of a beautiful woman, and yet the image of Artemis or, or Diana literally was this fat, chubby little thing that just, you look at it and go, that's grotesque, okay? But that's who they worshipped. And they considered her to be a god. It was one of the highest gods to them. And therefore, they made one of the most ornate, elaborate temples to Artemis or to Diana that ever existed. In fact, the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. You've heard of the Hanging Gardens in Babylon. That was one. There's the pyramids. And you go through that list. The temple to Diana was in that list of amazing feats of human accomplishment in the world. It was 425 feet long, one and a half city blocks. It was uh, 260 feet wide, massive, and just dominated the area in which it stood. It had 130 stone columns, and each of them stood uh, stood 60 feet high. And many of them were embellished with gold and jewels that had been the the gifts of kings and princes and and authorities to the temple, to the city, and it was all put into this temple to Diana. At the temple, there were thousands of musicians, eunuchs, and priestesses who really were nothing but prostitutes who worked in the temple. So it was a major employment center. The temple also was the banking and financial center of the city. And curiously enough, as well as being the banking center, it also was a haven for criminals. It was a safe house. If you wanted to escape as a criminal, you would go into that temple, and there you were free from being prosecuted or or punished for your crime. Now, I don't know why, in common sense, they would combine one building into being a bank 
and a safe house for criminals, but that's what it was, okay? But this was not just something you'd walk by and go, oh, that's nice, okay? This was a massive structure that dominated the landscape in the city. Not just the building, but the worship of Diana, the false worship of gods and idols dominated the city as well. So this was one of the major religious centers in the, in the region. And the worship that centered around this temple was full of apostasy, immorality, and frequently characterized by wild, drunken orgies. This was not just the religion of Ephesus. This was what society lived around, okay? It, it revolved around this worship of Diana. The gods and goddesses were the center of their life. And so here, this religion dominated everywhere you looked in the city of Ephesus. Now, the society in Ephesus was what you would expect in a big city with lots of money. Okay, think New York City again, or Los Angeles, Hollywood, um, where all the rich and famous people gathered. That was Ephesus. That's where the money was, that's where the culture was, that's where life was, um, and that's where famous and rich gathered together. So when you get a picture of Ephesus, I mean, think, like I just said, New York City, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, okay? These are not places that you would name as, oh yeah, that's really religious, that's really godly. No, it's just the opposite picture of that. And that is what Ephesus was. If you wanted to describe it in one word, it was sin city, okay? It was as ungodly as you could get. In fact, every year, they held a massive athletic competition in Ephesus called the Great Games, the Great Games of Ephesus. It rivaled the Olympics, and athletes and people from all over the world would come there to participate in this week-long event that would bring thousands, hundreds of thousands sometimes, of people into the city to celebrate human achievement in athletics. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 8, Paul says this, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. What he's talking about is this time of these games was about to happen. From Paul's perspective, he wasn't there to get tickets and enjoy the show. From Paul's perspective, he's thinking... Here's 100,000 new opportunities to present the gospel to people who probably have never heard of Jesus Christ. But this is Ephesus in the picture. And this is the backdrop of the church at Ephesus that we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 2. Many of the believers, Gentile believers, that were saved and in this church at Ephesus were saved out of the culture I just explained to you. They were idol worshipers. They were materialistic. They were caught up in false teaching. They were all consumed with humanism and human pleasure. That was their life until they received Christ. And now there's this church stuck in the middle of this city, functioning and trying to survive. Now, that's what we might think. This little church just trying to struggle and get along and just survive in this awful place. And yet the description that Christ gives of the church was totally different than that. Okay, Look at verses 2 and 3 because he describes the conditions of the church at Ephesus. He says, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and has patience, and for my name's sake thou hast labored and has not fainted. This is a flourishing church, a very spiritual, successful church in many ways, in flour- that, that was growing and just flourishing in the middle of this wicked city. So something was right in the church. Now let me tell you where this church came from. Initially, the church was probably founded by Paul near the end of his second missionary journey. He stopped at Ephesus in about 51 or 52 AD, and when he was there, he took Aquila and Priscilla, and he didn't stay long, but when he left, he left Aquila and Priscilla there. They stayed there and started spreading the gospel and probably having Bible studies, and I I don't know what else they did. One thing we do know they did is that they met a man named Apollos. 
Apollos came to the city of Ephesus. Apollos was a great Bible teacher, a great servant of the Lord, and yet he didn't have everything about the gospel squared away yet. So when he came to Ephesus, Acts chapter 18 tells us that Apollo, I'm sorry, Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos under their arms and kind of brought him along and taught him the fullness of the gospel so he would understand it better. He became a mighty testimony and a mighty warrior for Christ, a mighty speaker that brought the gospel to many people. And so he was kind of the first real leader after Paul in this small beginning church in Ephesus at this point. Of course, Aquila and Priscilla are still there, and they're teaching people and bringing them along. And then at the, begin, at the end, I'm sorry, at the beginning of his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul comes back to Ephesus, probably a couple years later. And he stays there for three years, building the church up, teaching people. And so Paul's there for three years. In fact, you read about when he leaves in Acts chapter 20, and he gives this speech to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And when he leaves, the, the elders are crying because they don't want to see him go. But when he leaves, after three years of ministry there and building up the disciples, he sends Timothy. And we have First and Second Timothy. We know what kind of a man Timothy was. We know the kind of things he stood for and what he learned from Paul. And so Timothy served there as an elder, maybe the lead elder, for many years. And Timothy, as well as several other strong elders, led that church for the next 20 or 25 years. After that, those 20 or 25 years of the beginning of the church, then comes along the Apostle John. Now, probably many of you didn't know that the Apostle John actually lived in Ephesus for the last part of his life, probably close to 30 years. And he was part of this church at Ephesus. He may have been an elder. He calls himself an elder. He doesn't say he was the elder of the church at Ephesus, but he was an elder. He may have served as an elder, but his ministry was stationed or headquartered at this church in Ephesus. And then from here, he would reach out and maybe started other churches all around the area around Ephesus. We don't know for sure. But we know for sure that he had a ministry in Ephesus for 25 or 30 years. In fact, he was ministering at Ephesus when Domitian, the emperor of Rome, came and took him and imprisoned him in the island of Patmos that we learned about in chapter 1. And he was there for a couple years until Domitian died, and then he was released, and he came back to the church at Ephesus. And tradition and some old literature tells us that John literally, in his old age, he could have been 100 years old at this point, he was carried into the church where he would minister to people and encourage them to love each other. That was the ministry of John. And so it's at this point, when John is at Patmos, that God gives John this revelation and this message to give to this church that he knows so well. This is the church at Ephesus. So this is the church that has been taught well by some of the best teachers and elders for its first 25 or 30 years. This is a strong church. They had a great foundation of doctrine. They had a great emphasis on evangelism and missions. They had great examples of men who led by example and who worked hard in the ministry. This is a church you would want to go to. If you came into a city and were looking for a good church, by all accounts, as you saw this church function, you'd be like, that's where I need to go. That's the best church around. In fact, look at the description of Christ. In verse 2, he says, I know thy works. The word works here is ergon in the Greek. It means hard work or toil. They worked hard. It wasn't just the ministers that worked hard. The whole church worked hard. Everybody was involved. And he says this word labor, I know thy works and thy labor. The word is kapos. It means the kind of work that leads to exhaustion. So it's not just that they worked diligently. They worked hard, consistently, until they were worn out. And this was for the church. It was building up the body of Christ that this work was done to. It wasn't that they went to work to earn money and worked hard and then came to church. What Christ is saying is they worked hard to build this church. That's where their efforts were expended. 
So it wasn't a bunch of pew sitters. They were hard workers. Everyone pitched in any way they could to help this church grow. I mean, you talk about a church that any pastor would love. This is it, right here. And then he says, you're not just a hardworking church. Look at the next phrase. He says, I know thy patience. The word patience is hupomone. We saw that in chapter 1 when John describes his fellowship in suffering and in patience with other believers. That means to remain under, or in other words, to bear up under immense pressure. Now, again, think of the circumstance that this church operated in, the city that they were uh, working and ministering in, and the persecution that they faced. Remember, the emperor of Rome did not like Christians, and they were killing Christians and dragging them out of their homes at this point. Many were sent to the gladiators or to wild animals to be killed. And yet Christ is saying, you are a persevering church, a patient church even under these dire circumstances and suffering and persecution. And it's that perseverance in patience, quietly waiting, working, letting God decide the outcome. So they're a hard-working church. They're a patient and persevering church. And they're a pure church. He goes on and he says, And you canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them, which they say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. These people were concerned about doctrinal purity. They did not put up with false teaching for an instant. In fact, Paul, when he left Ephesus and gave this speech to the elders at Ephesus, he told them in Acts 20, there will be wolves that rise up from within your church. Be ready for them. They were. This is 30 years later, and Christ is commending them because they could not tolerate false teaching for an instant in any way. They tried the spirits, as John tells us in 1 John. They were diligent to make sure that the truth and nothing but God's truth was being preached and taught in that church. And anything that went against that, they dealt with. Immediately. And Christ commends them. He says, You have tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, has found them liars. You're the ones that have rooted these people out through the truth, and you cannot tolerate them. So you talk about a church that is just like the model of what every church should be outwardly. Here it is the church at Ephesus. And in verse 3, again, Christ just reiterates their steadfastness, their perseverance in truth. He says, you have born or born under, you have patience, you have for my name's sake, you have labored, and you have not fainted. No matter how hard this was, they kept going. It's working steadfastly in the work of the Lord. This is the kind of church that we're talking about. And again, if you walked into the church and you looked at what was happening there from all outward appearances, you would say, this is a perfect church. But God does not look at people or churches from the outside. God looks at the heart. And that's why we get to verse 4. And Christ says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Here is the fatal flaw in this church. They have left their first love. Christ says the real problem, and it's a serious problem, it's not something that manifests itself outwardly necessarily, it's something that only Christ would be able to see, is that they have left their first love. Now, I want to point out a couple of things about that phrase that Christ uses. He says you have left your first love. It's not that they lost their first love. They didn't lose it. The word left here means they walked away. Now, you've heard the analogy. I've used it several times, and many others have, that if you find yourself far from God, it's not because God has moved away from you. It's because you have walked away from God. That's what Christ is saying about this church. And we think, well, wait a minute. How in the world could they be so diligent and so concentrated on doing what's right 
and so pure in maintaining the right doctrine and so concerned about godliness in their lives, and then Christ say, you've left your first love. You've walked away from God. How is that possible? Now, there's a debate among scholars and commentators about this phrase, first love. What does it really mean? But the ones who are, I guess, most conservative, most doctrinally based, really have a consensus that it's not real hard to figure out this first love because Jesus made it very clear where our first love should be. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this and finished the phrase, Seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. That first, the word first there, does not mean just first in a list. It doesn't just mean that's the first thing you need to do. The idea of first here is the most important thing. And so what Christ is telling the church at Ephesus, you have walked away from the most important thing in your life. And what did Jesus say was the most important thing? To seek God and his kingdom. And how do we do that? By loving God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. And if we do that, then what will happen? We will love our neighbor as ourselves. That was Jesus' words. When the Pharisees came and tried to trap him and said, what's the greatest commandment? That was his answer. You love God with everything you are. And when you love God, you will love other people. And what Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus here is, you do all these works, you have this performance of religion and righteousness that you outwardly show the world and show other people, and yet you've lost your love for God. Not lost, you've walked away from your love for God. It was a serious problem that they had. And Christ is telling them, you're no longer working and doing all these things out of love for God. It's not that you shouldn't be doing all of this. I'm commending you for your activity, for your perseverance, for your work, for your diligence, for your patience. I'm commending you for that. But the motivation is wrong. You've walked away from the motivation of doing it because you love the Lord. So even though outwardly this church was doing all the right things, they were doing it in their own strength and for their own purposes. That's what Christ tells them. You have walked away from your first love, your love for God, your love for Christ. That's not your motivation anymore. Now let me tell you what a church like this looks like. And I've been in one or two in my lifetime. I've seen it firsthand. First of all, They are absolutely dedicated to the letter of the law as far as the Bible is concerned. What the Bible says, that is what we will do. That's not wrong in itself. In fact, that's what the Pharisees said. They took the law that they had at that time, and they were diligent about keeping that law down to the last inch, down to the last detail of their life. They were diligent about keeping the law, and yet Christ condemned them. Why? Because with their lips they provided service to God, but their heart was far from him. But a church that loses their first love is diligent about the letter of the law, diligent about what the Bible says. And I say the letter of the law because that's exactly what it is. It's a legalistic, ritualistic adherence to a set of rules and regulations that they believe that God has set as the standard in order to be a good Christian. That's legalism, if you want to put it in a term. Or not just a good Christian, a good Baptist, or a good Presbyterian, or a good Methodist, or a good Reformed believer, or whatever denomination or tag you want to put on that. We have to follow these rules. And if we follow these rules and we do these things, that makes me a good Christian. And God will look down on me and smile. Now, they follow those rules. And again, they're diligent. They're diligent about maintaining the truth 
It's about practicing the truth, just like the church at Ephesus. And then they take that list of biblical rules and regulations and those standards that they've set, and they figure if it's good for us, it's good for everybody else. And they apply them to everybody else who comes into their church or who is outside of their church. And this is called legalism because we believe that by doing all the right things, by saying all the right things, by performing the right way, that it makes us a better Christian and we earn brownie points with God. And I think many sincere Christians have this idea of serving God as, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. i got to read my Bible because that's what a Christian does. i got to pray because that's what a Christian does. I have to go to church. I have to witness to people. I have to hand out tracts. And the more I do it, the better of a Christian I am. And the more God will bless me. That's legalism. You cannot do enough to be pleasing in God's sight by yourself. That's where this church was. And when I say better Christian, usually what people are thinking in their mind is, it makes me better than the other guy. It makes me better than those people. It makes me better than that denomination. God doesn't care when he looks at you about everybody else. God cares if you've met his standard in what you are in his sight. It's not about comparing yourself to other people. It's about comparing ourselves to what God expects of us. And when we do that, then we come to the conclusion that we absolutely, utterly fail God all the time. And then we're back to chapter 1 where John fell on his face before the Lord because he realized his own unrighteousness. See, God describes this attitude of trying to be a better Christian or better than other people or better than that group. That's pride. That's where the church at Ephesus was headed. They were doing this for themselves to present a good picture to everybody else to show that they were a great church. Now, when you start applying all of those rules and regulations to everybody, then that makes you a very judgmental church. You start condemning and criticizing everybody else around you. One of the reasons is because you don't want to feel bad about your own sin. So if you can prove that other people are worse than you, that makes you feel better about yourself. That's human nature. We all do it by default. We want to step on other people because that makes me feel big in our natural man. I mean, and, and I've seen this in denominations where we're, we're a better denomination because we do it better than this denomination. It's the same thing. And so a church like this becomes very judgmental. They criticize everyone for the least little failing. They accuse everyone for doing wrong and breaking the standard, even though the people in those churches or the people themselves don't live up to the standards that they're judging everybody else by. See, that's legalism at its core. Actions and outward appearance is what everybody is judged by, and therefore I have become the judge to tell everybody where they failed. I'm not going to talk about where I failed. I'm going to talk about where they failed. But that's where this leads. The church becomes very judgmental. And they make excuses for themselves, but they accuse everybody else. And so this is the process that the church at Ephesus is going through. This is what they're becoming. Christ sees it. Now, the evidence may not have been that apparent to the people that were there or to people that were around them. But Christ looked internally at what man could not see, and he saw this attitude of a lack of love and pride that was beginning to build, and their motivation had changed from serving God out of love to serving God out of duty and to build my own reputation And he said, this is a deadly problem. You have lost the substance of what being a church and what being a Christian is all about. It's just a performance now. And so you can very clearly see that there's a lack of love toward each other because there's no real love for Jesus Christ. They walked away from that true love for God and for Christ that they started out with. 
And when there's no love for each other, obviously, then problems and arguments start to break out among them because of selfishness and pride. James chapter 4 tells us that. Where do arguments, fightings, wars come from? They come from within, our lusts, our selfishness. And the things that we want, the standards that we set, that nobody else can actually achieve or meet for us, we get into arguments with them. We have discord. There's divisions that happen because we're judging them according to our lust, what we want to be, our expectations. So the next step in this progression in a church is not just the judgmentalism, but then they start judging each other within the church. And more likely than not, they end up in a church split. These people don't agree with these people. This group that agrees with the pastor doesn't agree with that group who doesn't agree with the pastor about the color of the carpet, the kind of lights we should have, the color of the walls, you know, what version of the Bible we're reading out of. It's, it's little stupid things. Why? Because we become so focused on ourselves. We've lost the love for God. We've walked away from that to love ourselves. And then it doesn't matter how we treat other people. Now we say, oh, no, no, I love you, I love you. We, you know, we hug at church, but we go home and all we do is badmouth each other, criticize each other. Now I'm not saying this is the character of this church. I'm saying this is the general condition of a church and Christians who are in this state. And it happens more often than we think because sometimes those Christians that we think are the best Christians behind closed doors are the worst gossips. Now, you end up in a church split because they can't get along. Everybody's fighting now because they want what they want. And the church splits, separates. And you've seen this happen over and over and over. And frankly, this is the only reason a church should split, or does split, it shouldn't split, but this is the only reason that a church ends up splitting is because people are selfish. Or there may be doctrinal impurity that's being taught from the pulpit. That's a good reason to leave. But generally, most church splits happen because there's disagreements because of selfishness and pride. Now, this isn't just about churches. This is about people. Because this happens in relationships between people, too. Our relationships with other people. Think about people in your life that you don't get along with. Why don't you get along with them? Because they don't agree with you. Why not? Well, because I'm right and they're wrong, right? Yeah, we can get along because I agree that you have a right to be wrong, because I'm right. Eventually, that breaks down. It doesn't happen, okay? As long as you think you're always right, somebody else always has to be wrong, and then you're going to tell them they're wrong. But in a relationship between individual believers, the same results occur, and you end up with two people who call themselves Christians, who say they love God, and here they are in animosity toward each other, holding grudges and unforgiveness instead of living in biblical love. There's no fellowship because that was broken by the pride and selfishness. But you look at the outward performance of their lives and you think, wow, they're pretty good Christians. They're, they're models of what you know, I want my kids to become. But that's just the outward appearance. That was the church at Ephesus. They are models of what the church should be outwardly. And yet Christ says there's a real problem inside and people are the same way. So even though everything else in their lives may look pretty good, this lack of love that is at the root of the problem starts to manifest itself in little problems with others, little disagreements that can't be resolved, unforgiveness, lack of submission to each other that we're commanded to do in the Bible. We are to submit to one another. First Peter tells us that. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that. That is a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit when we are able to submit ourselves to other people, to their needs. And then the trend that takes the church or the person down that track of selfishness and pride ultimately leads to rebellion, apathy, and worldliness. Because the world's philosophy is, it's my life. 
I get to make the choices. I will do what's best for me. And if that's the attitude of a believer, that is absolute humanism. And the problem is a lack of love for God, true love for Jesus Christ. And usually it's not too long before you see in their lives little compromises, little things. All of a sudden they're violating the very standards that they said they held at one point and accused everybody else of breaking. But they go down that slide. They compromise a little here, they compromise a little there. Pretty soon their whole life is compromised, and pretty soon they're so far away from God, and you look at their lives 10, 20, 30 years later, and it's like, I thought that was a Christian. And along that slide, how many lives have they destroyed because of their selfishness and bitterness and pride? And once Satan has his foot in that door, he will very quickly move in and take up residence. And it's not just in a church, it's in our lives as as Christians. Now, I'm not speaking in hypotheticals here. This is a real danger for churches, our church, and it is for our lives as believers. Now, I, I don't know what you're thinking. I can't read minds, thankfully, okay? I am so glad I can't read minds. That's God's prerogative, okay? But you might be sitting there thinking, as, as I know some people that I have learned to know over the years who have actually told me this, that, you know what? I'm not in danger. I'm good enough. I love God with all my heart. It's never going to happen to me. What did Paul tell the Corinthians of an attitude like that? It's that attitude of pride that leads to destruction, right? Take heed to those who you think you're standing lest ye fall. As long as you think that it won't or can't happen to you, you're the most likely candidate to go down that path. That's where the church at Ephesus was. I have seen churches and I have seen people follow this progression, and it starts with a lack of true biblical love for God and a lack of love toward others. Now, I don't care how much... People will say to me, no, I love God, I love people, I love people. Look at all these things I'm doing. And I've had people that were drunks, that were drug addicts, that stole from people, and as I'm counseling with them, they say, I love people, I do all these good things. As if that's supposed to make up for all the hurt they've caused. It doesn't work that way. What you are in your worst moment, that's what you really are. And you try to cover it up with all the performance of religion and good works. God doesn't see it that way. He looks past the performance. He looks at the heart. And the ultimate problem here is a lack of love. We're no longer motivated by true love for God because when it comes down to it, we really don't care what God thinks as long as I do enough. That should be okay for him and he'll take care of me and give me the blessings that I want. And then the rest of my life is up to me. I can live it the way I want for my pleasure, for my gain, for my profit. But it's a lack of love. That was the problem in the church at Ephesus, and it's a real danger for us today. This lack of love for God is a cancer that will destroy a church, and it will destroy you as a Christian. And it starts out as just a little crumb, a little spot. And we look at that little spot, we go, ah, it's not a big thing. And yet, how fast will cancer spread and destroy a person's life? We think we're okay because we're doing a lot of great things for Christ in our church or in our lives. We're doing a lot of good works, helping people. We think because we do the outward working of good works that we're fulfilling the law of Christ. The church at Ephesus was. They did it better than anybody ever did it before. And Christ says, here's your problem. You lack love. You have walked away from the love that you first had for me at the beginning. 
And when we lack true Christian love, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, if you go through that list and that's not a definition of your life, then everything you do means nothing as far as Christ's kingdom is concerned. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He starts off, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. It means nothing. Nothing we do outside of a true love for God and true love for other people means anything to God, and it does nothing to build the church of God or his kingdom on this earth. But we've convinced ourselves that all our good works prove how good of a Christian we are. And it doesn't matter if it's a church that operates like this or an individual in their Christian life that lives like this. It is wrong. It is sinful. And it's not what Christ has said that his church or our lives as believers are to be. If everything about our Christianity has become an outward performance to prove to God and everyone else how good of a church we are or how good of a Christian I am, then basically we're wasting our life and we're doing nothing but hurting people, not helping them. It's exactly what Christ condemned the Pharisees for in Matthew 23. In verses 27 and 28, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, there were several people, Pharisees, who came to Christ. Think of the rich young ruler, very high religious leader. And he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Christ said, well, you know the law, right? That's God's standard. And the guy said, I have kept all of that from my youth up. Christ didn't contradict him. He didn't say, no, you haven't. He may have kept all of those 613 laws of the Old Testament perfectly through his life. I doubt it, but it's possible, maybe. But Christ said, well, you only lack one thing then. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Come and follow me. Is Christ more important than all this other stuff? Your status, your position, your goods, your house, your family, is Christ more important? That's what he condemned them for. He called them hypocrites. He said, for you're like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, church at Ephesus, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. That was Christ's assessment of the Pharisees. Outwardly, they did all the right things. Inwardly, they were full of sin. Great outward performance, no internal love. And that, right there, is the greatest hypocrisy in the world. I recently had somebody say to me, you know, it seems like Christians are the greatest hypocrites. And I said, you know, that's true, because we claim to love God and to love other people, and then we destroy people in trying to accomplish our own lives. The church at Ephesus had walked away from living in love for God and in love to others, and the effects of it were just beginning to show. And here's Christ's exhortation to the church, and I'm going to go through this quickly, but I want you to get this point. Verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. He tells them three things that they, have to, that they have to do here. Number one, remember. Remember from where thou art fallen. And the word fallen here in the Greek means a completed action. It means they're not in the process of falling. They're already at the bottom. That's what Jesus is saying about this church. They're at the bottom. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember that first love that you had when you started Loving God, when you started serving out of pure love for God, regardless of what it cost you or what it gained you, remember that. That's what it's all about right there. He says you have to put that back in the focus because love is a fruit of the Spirit. It will show when the Spirit's in control. And guess what? When the Spirit's not in control, it won't be there. So obviously this was not a Spirit-filled church. It was just an active church. He says go back there. Go back to where God is in control, where the Holy Spirit is guiding you, where you have the fruit of the Spirit being manifest in your life on a regular basis. 
Let go of the wheel of your life and submit yourself back to God so that you can start loving others the way you should. And he says, then repent. Repent means turn around, 180 degree turn. Not just a turn in actions, but it's a change, 180 degree change in thinking, in motivation, why we do things, not just what we do. He says, stop living the way you're living. Repent. And embedded in that word is the word forsake. When you repent, that means you forsake. You turn away from all of what defines you now to become something different. So he says, remember where you came from. Remember that first place, that first love. Repent of where you are now and then repeat the things that you used to do. Start living in love again. Start letting God be the motivation of your life. Not looking for some benefits from God as a reward for what you're doing, but just serving him out of pure love. Go back to the law of Christ as the foundation of your Christianity and love one another. And he gives this warning. If you're not going to do it, the end of verse 5, or else I will remove the candlestick from out of its place. And we already know the candlestick is the church. Christ called it that. He defined it for us at the end of chapter 1. Christ says he will remove the candlestick. Literally, Christ will close down the church. That's what he's telling them. You will not exist anymore if you cannot repent. And it's not an empty threat that Christ gave him. This was written toward the end of, I don't know, 95 96 AD, I don't know exactly the date that this was written, in the 90s sometime. Before the end of the second century, the church at Ephesus was gone. There is no church in Ephesus now. There hasn't been for almost 2,000 years. In fact, there's not even a city where Ephesus stood. God removed their candlestick in a huge way because they would not repent. But look at verse 7. There's a promise here. He says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The word overcometh here is to the ones who will continue to be victorious, who will overcome the circumstances, continue to persevere in love, regardless of the church that surrounds them that lacks love, the people that surround them that lack love, the culture around them that lack God. These people continue to persevere. And he says, to him that overcometh, I will give to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All through scripture, you see references to those who persevere, the ones who overcome in the end. And those are the ones that Jesus Christ says are true followers and true believers. Now, I don't have time to make parallels between what we see in the church at Ephesus and the the parable of the sower that Christ taught one of his very first parables. But what is it that causes us to walk away from God? Materialism, fame, status, just plain selfishness, our lusts, okay? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, Paul's talk, or Paul, John is talking about false teachers who were in the church at Ephesus. And he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. In other words, they're not true believers. People who follow this course in their life are not true believers, just like the parable of the sower. The seed sprouts in the thorny ground, but the thorns, the cares of the world, choke it out. There's no life. That means there's no true salvation. The seed sprouts in the stony ground, and when persecution comes, the sun shines, they wither up and die. There's no life. And Jesus says, they're not true believers. Here he says, those people who overcome, who continue to live in love, and it shows in their life even amidst this, yeah, they're the ones that are going to receive that promise. I'm not going to read the whole book of 1 John for you. 
Okay, we don't have time. We've got to finish. But First John, it's not a coincidence that the man who received this vision and the message for the church that he's writing here was the same man who wrote the book of First John. Let me give you a summary very quickly of First John. In chapter 1, we are introduced to Jesus Christ as the basis of our fellowship. Sounds like chapter 1 of Revelation. And to be in fellowship with each other, we must be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what 1 John chapter 1 says. He ends in chapter 1 by saying that anyone who says they have no sin is a hypocrite, a liar. I'm good enough. He says you're a liar. But if you recognize you have sin and you confess it, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9. Chapter 2 begins by saying, if we love Christ, we will keep his commandments. What is the greatest commandment? Love God and love each other. It goes on to say, if we don't love our brother, then we do not walk in light. In other words, we have walked away from the light into darkness. And then we're told not to love the world. What draws us away from Christ? The love of the world. And he says in that passage toward the end of 1 John chapter 2 that if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And he says at the end of chapter 2, beware of false teachers who will teach us to love ourselves first. Sounds like the church at Ephesus. They dealt with those people, but they did it out of pride. Chapter 3 in 1 John begins by telling us that those who are born of God do not commit sin as a way of life. And in verse 11 of that of chapter 3, he says, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There it is. It's all wrapped up in that one phrase. Later in chapter 3, he says that it's in, that is our heart that will condemn us, not necessarily our actions. Because God looks at the heart. Chapter 4 of 1 John warns us again to test the spirits, whether they be of God. In other words, what does the fruit of their life tell us about their true heart condition and intent? Test the spirits. And the rest of chapter 4 explains that if we truly love God, we will by default love one another. And anyone that doesn't love other people, the love of God is not in him. Chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And it goes on to talk about those who are overcomers. Those who truly love God and others in an ungodly world, these are the true disciples of Christ. In the last part of chapter 5, this says in verse 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. You cannot believe and not have love. It can't happen. Now, all of this, is not just a condemnation and a warning to the church at Ephesus. It's condemnation and a warning to us, our church, and us as individual believers. How many churches do you know about or heard about that have closed their doors? Some of them are houses now. People have converted them. Some are businesses. I saw a church that was a real estate agency. In fact, my wife and I even came across a church, major, beautiful church, that was converted into a bar. God took away the candlestick because they would not listen. And God is serious about this for his church and for his people, about the manner in which we must live. And it has to start with a true love for God. Rule number one is to love God with all of your heart and then to love one another as Christ has loved us. And if we can't do that or will not do that because of our selfishness and pride, then God will not allow us to remain in our place on this earth. He'll take away the candlestick, the testimony that we could have to other people. It'll be gone, and God will let us destroy ourselves, either as a church or as individuals. If you want to let your light so shine before men, it starts with loving God as you should, making him the first priority in your life. And you can answer that question very easily, not by saying, yeah, God is the most important thing to me. Look at how you live every day. 
Coming to church doesn't answer that question. How many times you pray a day doesn't answer that question. Even how much of the Bible you read or memorize doesn't answer that question. The question is answered by how do I love other people consistently? Because without that, nothing else matters. Jesus says this, He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You have heard the truth. And the question is whether or not you're going to turn back to it and live in love for God the way God intended for us so that we love each other the way God intended us to or whether you're going to continue to go down your own way until God puts your light out. And my prayer is that that will never happen to this church. But it's a grave danger And every single one of us, including this church, is susceptible to it. And I pray that none of you, because of your pride and selfishness, refuse to repent. And remember, 1 John says, if I say that I'm without sin, I'm good enough. It's not me that you're talking to. God says you're a liar. The truth is not in you. All of us fall into this category because none of us is perfect. And so that repentance is a daily thing. That's what it means. Take up your cross and follow me daily. Repent. Turn away from whatever I want. Follow Christ. Love him first. Love other people. So we have the remedy. But I would not wish to see that God takes his light away from this church or your life ever. That depends on you. Have you left your first love? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. We know that that's consistent. It is permanent. It will never change. And yet we fail so often in loving you as we should, and we fail so often in loving others. That is where we fail to give you the glory in everything. And so we need your help. Because we realize that we are nothing, we are helpless, we cannot do it ourselves. Help us to turn back to you with all that we have, to give you all that we have, so that you can do your work in us, and through us, you might bless other people as your love spills out of us. Thank you again for your promises to those who overcome, and may we be counted among those overcomers who will receive that promise of eternal blessing. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to sing I Need Thee Every Hour as our closing hymn this morning, hymn number 318. I know we've gone long. We're just going to take a couple minutes to sing this because we do need Christ every hour. You cannot do anything apart from him that is worthwhile except sing.